Hey, what's up, everybody? Our main text for today is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And um, as you may be able to tell, um, Hannah and I are teaching and preaching together this morning. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Which is pretty awesome. Uh, If you're just checking in... um, Uh, Hannah and I have been married for a little over 15 years now. Uh, We have four children, um, and we have been serving and leading around here for over 12 years. And so this is just really, uh, really special to get to come up here and serve in this way. Um, I want to be really clear that this is not intended to be dueling banjos this morning. However, it is intended to be a rap battle. All right, and so uh, actually, it's not. It's not intended to be a rap battle. Uh, it's not intended to be, even though we're set up like this. Because I would win. Oh, there it is. Uh, it's not intended to be a presidential debate, even though we have this set up. But I do want you to know that we are going to take a vote at the end to see who does a better job. All right. I think I'm going to lose that vote. All right. Um, you know, I was just, this isn't part of the, I'm going to pray. Um, this isn't in my notes here. Well, actually it is at the very top of my page from days ago. Uh, it says, be thirsty. And we just sang that song. And I just want to make the point that if you are someone uh, who just longs to, to see your heart, your life, uh, your, your whatever it is grow in Jesus, if you, if you want to have like be like those streams of living water flowing out like Jesus talks about that we just sang about that that song is from there, John chapter 7. The only requirement for that is to be thirsty and to recognize that, that we come to him thirsty. Not having it all figured out, not having this skill or this gift. It's just simply being thirsty. And so brothers and sisters, this morning let's come as a thirsty people, and let's, let's go before him in that way. <laughs> and so, God, we come and we call you Father, and we do so knowing and believing and trusting that you are the one who gives good gifts to your people. You know how to give good gifts to your people. Every good and perfect gift is from you. And God, some of us in here need your comfort. Some of us in here need your encouragement as our Father. Some of us in here have these dreams, God. Some of us in here want to take the next step, and we're not quite sure how, or we're not even quite sure we want to, whatever it is. God, with all of that, we come to you right now, not with a front not hoping this to get by, but we come to you thirsty. And we ask that you would make us even more thirsty for you. Holy Spirit, we together as your people ask that you would come and move among us and produce a fruit that is abundant even during these moments. We come and we ask it humbly, and boldly, and in the name of Jesus, and everybody agreed and said, amen. So, if you've been around here, you know that that we've been saying that we as a church are all about some things. We as a church are all about, first and foremost, at the very top of the list, we are all about King Jesus. We as a church 
are all about everyone living the beautiful and radical way of Jesus. And we as a church are all about the city of Fort Wayne and the nations of the earth singing for joy. I love that. Singing for joy in the name of Jesus. And we want to be a people who don't just say those things and talk about those things. We want to be a people who take action toward those things in everyday real life. And what we've been saying is that as we do that, as we follow Jesus together, there are four basic actions that we take. You're going to come up here on the screen. We bow together. Oh, we didn't talk through the PowerPoint. (laughs) It's in there. It's in there. It's not in there? All right. It's, what's that? I looked in there. What's it it's okay. It's not in there. We don't have a PowerPoint this morning. Hashtag small church problems that we face every single, every single week. So imagine this beautiful picture in your mind up on the screen, all right? No, we bow, four basic actions, right? You guys know it. We bow together, we sit together, we walk together, and we run together. And in this particular season, we as a church here on Sunday mornings are taking one of those and we're teaching and preaching from the scriptures about them. And then we come back together the next week and we simply try to put it into practice. We try to take some kingdom action in that direction. We've considered together this idea of everyone bowing. And that has to do with worship. We've considered together this idea of everyone sitting And that has to do with relationships right here within the church. And starting today, we are going to consider this idea of everyone walking. And this has to do with formation. And formation, perhaps for you, might be be a new or newer word. It's actually a word that we've used around here for quite some time, and we use it a lot. It's just simply, formation is just simply synonymous with words like transformation or change, or the Bible word, discipleship. What we are talking about today is the process by which people and communities of people are formed to become more and more like Jesus. Let me say that again. What we're talking about today is the process by which people and communities of people are formed to become more and more like Jesus. That is formation. And that is so central to a life of following Jesus together. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great 20th century German theologian and pastor, wrote, quote, Christianity without discipleship, he could have said, Christianity without formation is always Christianity without Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters, this is life in the kingdom of God. Everyone walking. And I want to say it again, that everyone includes you. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you've done, what your background is, and no matter what, that everyone includes you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren and beyond. That everyone here includes the people who are sitting next to you right now. And the people who are sitting next to them and on down the road in both ways. And that people, that everyone includes who? The people who are not yet here. And Northeast, we want to do, what we want to do as a church is just structure everything we can and tilt everything we can toward that. And as you may know, our main scripture focus in this season has been the New Testament letter we call Ephesians. 
And the letter itself begins in these ways. This, this also was going to come up here on the screen. So if you want to turn in a Bible or open up an app, you're going to be able to find Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, where it says this. It says, Paul, an apostle of King Jesus, by the will of God. Two, so Paul, we know right here from the text that Paul is the, the one who crafted this beautiful, purposeful, spirit-inspired letter. And it says here, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful, the believers in King Jesus. And so Paul here is writing to these ragtag groups of people, followers of Jesus in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. And notice how he addressed them. It says, to God's holy people. And in many translations, it simply says, to the saints. Think about that. It says, to the saints. Paul addressed these little house churches in and around that city, here in verse 1, and actually throughout the entire letter, as saints. And saints is a word that, obviously, we don't use in our normal day-to-day vernacular, but saints is a loaded word, right? In the Roman Catholic tradition, in order to be considered a saint, there are a bunch of things that need to happen. In order to be considered a saint, one person has to live an extraordinarily holy life in Jesus, which is amazing. And then, after they die, years later, the local bishop investigates the person's life and for things like heroic virtue and right doctrine. And then a panel of theologians at the Vatican evaluates the candidate and gives a recommendation to the Pope, who then declares them venerable. And then, after that, the person has to do a miracle after their death. And then, if that miracle is proved, the Pope then proclaims them beautified. And then they do another miracle, and then they are canonized, or can be canonized as a saint. And I just want to be very clear, my brothers and sisters, and say that I am in no way right now throwing stones at the Roman Catholic tradition. In fact, Hannah and I have so much respect for our believing brothers and sisters within that stream of the Jesus movement. And I actually get what they're trying to do here, I believe, is to to lift up or esteem those men and women who have served King Jesus with extreme faithfulness. But where this might create some confusion for us is that that, what I just went through, seems like a really hard path to be considered a saint. But church, here's what the scriptures proclaim. If you hear this, somebody somebody needs to hear this today. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. Can I get an amen up in here? I mean, it's 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 Saint Toby sitting up here, right? It it's it's Saint Greg. It's Saint Carrie and St. Brian and St. Mallory and St. Hannah and St. Anthony. You guys, we in Jesus, we, my brothers and sisters, we are saints. And that is not because of how holy our lives might be. And it's not because of someone else's opinion about us. And it's not because we have done this and then this and then this and then this. And it's not because of how many miracles we have done. No, we are saints, hear this, because of and only because of King Jesus and what he has already done. And in that first line there, Paul uses the word, when he says to, to these people, he says to, the, the word is hagioi, which is, just simply means holy ones. That's why the NIV translates it God's, to God's holy people. And holy is a word that means set apart. It means, it means completely different or, or separate from. 
More specifically here in this context, it means set apart from sin and evil, and don't miss this, a way of life that aligns with the culture around us, set apart from that, and set apart to God and his kingdom and this new countercultural way of life in Jesus. That is what it means to be a saint. And hear it again. In Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus, that is who we are. We are saints. And at the very same time, in Jesus, we are called to grow, to become saints more and more and more. Ephesians chapter 4. This is in the NIV, verse 17 to 24. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So, they, so, so, think, so think about this. I, I promise I'm not going to interrupt her every, every sentence. <laughs> but th- think about what, what Paul just says there. Paul is writing to a people who are Gentiles. Remember what that word means? It means non-Jews. These are people from among the nations. And he says, you are Gentiles. You are people from among the nations. And that's not a bad thing. But he says, but you must no longer live in the way of the Gentiles. And so this would be like Paul writing a letter to us here and saying, so I tell you this, Northeast, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Americans do in the futility of their thinking. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And everybody agreed and said. So my brothers and sisters, be reminded this morning that a central part of following Jesus is this lifelong process of being formed from the inside out to live more and more the beautiful and radical way of Jesus. And walking I think that walking is such a helpful picture for this because the scriptures are so very clear that this, what we're talking about, is a process, a lifelong step-by-step process in which we are saints who are becoming saints, learning together to put off the old self and the way of living of the cultures around us, the, the progressive culture around us, and or the conservative culture around us, to put off the old self and those ways of living, and to put on the new self and this new countercultural way of living in Jesus and in the name of Jesus. And the question that drives so much of what Hannah and I are about is, okay, how does that happen? 
Like if, that's the, if that is really the clear call of God in the scriptures, if that is what we, this, this idea of being transformed over our whole life, like really being changed, if that's what the church is to be about, then how does that happen in everyday real life? And I want you to know that next week, our hope is to give a more full response to that question, which will involve drawing a triangle with some different parts of the triangle, which the guys who are part of the Wednesday morning men's formation group will be familiar with. And so next week, again, by God's grace, Lord willing, we'll draw that triangle and we'll get more into a more full response to the question. And most importantly, we'll try to put it into practice together. But for this morning, we want to emphasize that at the center of how formation happens is Jesus. This whole thing, this whole thing is about knowing, loving, and following Jesus. In other words, at the blazing center of all of this everyone walking idea is a real relationship with the real Jesus. And as I was about to get um, to talking, I started to take some deep breaths because I'm nervous. And it just made me think that in a room of this size, I think there's probably, um, and you guys know I'm a real raw person, so if you're feeling raw today, you're in good company. But as we get going, maybe a few of us need to take some deep breaths. So just in sitting in your chair, just taking a fuller breath that fills your whole lungs and letting it out and letting your body kind of soften and relax. Um, and I, because I said that, then I forgot to actually do it myself, so I'm going to take a moment. We're going to frame this conversation about um, the center of the circle that Tony just mentioned, really on verse 20 of chapter 4. So I read it a moment ago, but let's hear it again. Um, in NIV, it says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you learned about Christ. This verse must be harder to translate because it is pretty different from version to version. Um, New Testament theologians think that it's kind of an unusual phrase. Some translations say, learn about Christ, which is a familiar format to us because we learn about things, right? We learn about astronomy or we learn about gardening, the ESV translation, however, uses the words as they read straight from the Greek, and it says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. We're going to zoom in really on just that phrase and meditate on that this morning, learned Christ or learned Messiah. I think um, we can perceive a difference there in the meaning just when we hear it phrased in those different ways, because we know what it's like to learn someone, don't we? We learn our parents. Um, we learn the person that we're married to. We learn about Alexander Hamilton, or we learn about Tupac, or we oh, learn yeah. about Gloria Estefan. Verse 20. <laughs> tell them what you always, tell them what, tell them what you always want to do when you. I told him this morning that every time I say Gloria Estefan, I kind of want to do a little. <laughs> And I was like, I hope I don't do that this morning. And then I did. I made you. I'm sorry. <laughs> did anyone like Gloria Estefan in the 90s? Yeah, got some hands. Three of us, including <laughs> John Bars, I think I saw. <laughs> uh, um, okay, back on track. Um, verse 20 um, is that phrase, learning Christ, is a more relational way of learning. 
even in our studying of scripture, which hopefully we are all doing each in our own individual way, we are not learning the scriptures so much as we are learning Christ, right? Now, I see that Paul says that past tense, like they are, um, they've already learned him, but with the context of the letter and what we know of Paul's writing, he's talking about an ongoing learning. When we learn about something, um, like about Alexander Hamilton or about Tupac, that can be a one-time thing that we may or may not remember later on. But to learn someone is a continual process. Um, And this is similar to what you said at the beginning with, um, I think, talking about being thirsty, but... A few types of people were on my heart yesterday morning as I thought and prayed about what I was going to say today. Um, Some of us have learned Christ and been taught in him, but are we continuing to learn Christ? Seasoned followers of Jesus, can we in a new way be open and soft to learning him? We are at risk of growing cold. I am at risk of growing cold. So let's wake up and lean in. Some of us are weary and struggling, and a message like this could feel really heavy. And um, I just want to say that for you today, I want you to hear from me, keep going. Mm. And lastly, I really feel a burden um, agreeing with Paul's concern in those verses that I read earlier that there are those of us who have become callous, like those around them. And I don't know what to say. But I do know that anyone who can even considers if their heart is perhaps hard, that begins an immediate thaw, an immediate softening. So together, maybe we can all be a little softer and our ears a little bit more ready to hear this morning. So back to chapter 4, verse 20. Um, We are all being reminded of our formation being about learning a person, Jesus, and his way of being. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. And then he told us what he means by that. So that I can experience his power, participate in his suffering, become like him in his death, and attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not just know about Jesus, but know Jesus. I don't know what to do with this. Organize my stand. Thank you. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So today, what I would like to share um, are some elements of learning Christ as I have experienced him in my life. So one element is that of receiving the love of God. When we think about God revealed in scripture or in creation or through um, the church historically, I believe these are only formational as the Spirit enables us to receive the love of God. So I'm going to say that again. When we think of God revealed in Scripture and in creation and historically through his church, these are only formational as the Spirit enables us to receive the love of God. I've mentioned the idea of attachment from up front before, but I'm going to mention it again. Human beings are created for interactive, um, physically close, mimicking, need-meeting, unconditional relationships. This is most evident the moment a baby is born. They are held, they are looked at, they are responded to. Facial expressions are matched and needs are met. They become attached to a loving caregiver, and this lays the foundation 
for how they see themselves and the world. Pretty important. And this is all God's design. Um, Because of the brokenness of the world, many do not experience that right away, but we all need it. So past hurts and traumas can be later in life healed through attachment relationships. Brains can change and lives can be transformed through attachment. Um, And I've been talking about person-to-person attachment and relationships, but let's think about this in terms of our relationship with God. Attachment is not only God's design. It is his means of redemption in the life of an individual. God created us that way. He redeems us that way in his mercy. The truth of the good news and the message of the gospel is meant to be transformational within the context of God's attachment love. My therapist, Kathy, recently told me that in Scripture, God's attachment love toward us is revealed in the Hebrew word hesed. And in Hebrew, it's pronounced chesed, but I'm not going to keep repeating it that way because I feel like that could be really distracting. Um, Hesed. We've defined it um, up front before. Tony has as loyal love. I'm going to fly through some scripture references, but maybe um, I, I encourage you to jot them down and maybe come back to them later because they're so rich and so good. So the first one is Psalm 23.6. Surely goodness and said will follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 107.43. Let the one who is wise ponder the said of the Lord. Psalm 36, 7 through 9. How precious is your hesed, O God. All people take refuge under your wings. They feast from your abundance. They drink from your river of delights. With you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And those have a very um, maternal and paternal sound to them, but then there's also some references that have a more intimate sound. And this is from Hosea 2.19. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in hesed and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Um, This is a side note, but a really great practice in learning Christ could be um, looking up online just a document. Um, People have done this work for us already, a document of just those passages all listed out and just reading through them. And um, I think trying to make, um, as you do that, not trying to like focus on making really brilliant connections between the verses or trying to understand every single part of every single verse, but just reading them and then sitting there for a moment, um, just trying to receive it as being about you. Um, I feel like I need a drink. Okay, thanks. We get to experience attachment to God that brings healing and joy and life. We are created for this. And many of us have heard the scriptures or studied the scriptures without really receiving the love of God. And this is nothing to be judgmental about about because we can all know the love of Jesus in a deeper way, all of us. A good question that we could be asking each other is, 
How are you receiving the love of God today? If we are to learn Christ, then we will increasingly in an ongoing way receive the hesed of God like Jesus did. Another element of learning Christ is that of abiding. I feel like I'm getting to talk about all my favorite words this morning, really, because hesed I love, abiding I love. We know that formation takes effort and engagement on our part. It's walking, like how Tony said. But as we move throughout our day, we need to be ever mindful of our inclination towards striving and achievement. Um, I think we're all on the same page that we don't earn our salvation um, or our sainthood, but sometimes striving is disguised. See if any of these sound familiar. In our following Jesus, do we anxiously avoid sin? Are we chasing after a vision of holiness or goodness that leaves us exhausted? Do we agonize over our purpose until we are sick and depressed? A friend in our community group just had the realization that while so many of us live that way, that is not something we have to do. We don't have to be anxious about our purpose. We are invited to abide, moment by moment, dependence on God, even in our decision making. Um, I've shared this with several of you, but I wanted to bring it up um, today that on my birthday, God revealed something to me, I believe. Fresh starts are important to me, and so when I turned 37 in August, I kind of had a a journaling time where I was trying to think through um, where God had brought me in the last year, like where, um, how I had matured or grown. Um, Sorry. Um, But it was, I think for a lot of us, it was a very difficult year, the last couple years have been, and I couldn't think of much. The only thing I could say with any real confidence and peace was, I am more dependent on Jesus now than a year ago. And when I came to that realization, it it actually wasn't a bummer. Um, I believe God gave me the sudden awareness that if we look at Jesus, who is our picture of what is fully mature, if we are, as Paul says, attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature, what do we notice about him? At the pinnacle of his life and ministry, his peak moment, he is crying out to his father in desperation and in faithfulness. He is clinging to his father in radical obedience on a cross. Jesus, God the Father, depending, God the, I'm sorry, Jesus, God the Son, depending on God the Father, even unto death. Is that not an interesting way to think about the formation process? Hmm. I know that dependence is not the only marker of maturity, and fruit matters, and wisdom matters, but if we are to learn Christ, we see an undeniable moment-by-moment abiding in God. Okay, the next element of learning Christ, another word that I've just come to love, is surrender. And surrender and abiding are real similar ideas, I think, but I I think surrender gets at more the amount of access we give God in our lives. An incredible book on human transformation has a white flag on the cover um, because that symbolizes surrender, right? The waving of the white flag. And for some reason, I don't resonate as much with that image um, because I think to me it feels a little like we, we lose or we lost, um, 
we surrender, I guess, reluctantly, you know? Um, for me, for years now, the idea of surrender is captured best by consent to treat. I'm a registered nurse, and a long, long time ago now, I worked in the intensive care unit at Parkview for a couple years. And um, before we could treat a patient of, of their disease or do their surgery, they have to sign a paper that gives you permission, right? They sign consent. The picture of surrender to me is like signing the consent form, getting yourself up on the operating table and laying down in a flimsy hospital gown and knowing that you don't have any control anymore, that healing can only come from God's touch in our life wherever and however he wants to do that. And I feel like the picture of an operating table is kind of cold and sterile. And if you have trouble with medical <laughs> procedures and that's a source of anxiety, that might be like, oh, I hate that idea of surrender. But we have to remember that this is done in his loving, warm presence, that refuge that he is. Anyway, that is surrender. And then lastly, there is an element of wholeness. In our receiving of God's has said, and in our abiding and in our surrender, we have to engage the whole person. In this um, post-enlightenment age, we are pretty comfortable with the idea of engaging our intellect for learning. Um, it comes naturally to us, and um, learning Christ requires we engage all the parts of us, our intellect, our emotions, and even our bodies. We engage our emotions not because they are central, but because they're really relevant. We engage our intellect not because we just want to know a bunch of new things, but because we want to renew our minds. And we engage our bodies not because they are worthy of worship, but because they are the eternal vehicles with which we will worship God forever. Yeah. Even our bodies' limits and struggles, how we experience brokenness in, in us and then um, around us, can deepen our knowing God. So, um, oh, and even I was, you told me to mention this, I almost forgot, but even our passage for this morning in Ephesians 4 acknowledges the holistic way of formation. In um, that passage was the futility of their thinking, the hardness of their heart, um, practicing impurity and the desires of the body. Um, so this is from Paul, not just from me. Um, Christ lived in a body. That's probably our, our biggest reason for why we need to engage our body's information. He lived in a body. He still lives in his body. Our bodies do not reluctantly follow in our formation, and our feelings are not won over by the determination of our minds to obey. They are all an active part in our growing to become more like Jesus. Um, and we know, I think, with the language of mind and heart, I kind of wanted to get into, um, we know that our feelings do not come from here, right? They, come, they don't come from this organ. They come from this organ. So the involvement of our emotions in seeking God is not about, you know, am I a head person or am I a heart person? It's really about using part of the brain or all of the brain. Um, the part that I'm, I understand fully or all of the brain. Um, the part I'm comfortable with or all of the brain. When we go to God's word, it really needs to interact with our feelings and our bodily desires and experiences. And likewise, our feelings 
and bodily experiences and desires have to be submitted to his word and his spirit. Paul said, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of Jesus. And Dallas Willard said that in the journey of spiritual maturity, each essential dimension of the human being is transformed to be like Christ. This means more availability to love the Lord with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor as oneself. Including our whole selves in our formation is difficult because inevitably there are parts of ourselves that we've learned not to trust, and, um, and maybe for good reason, but we aren't asked to trust those parts of ourselves we're invited to entrust all of those parts to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and desires of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. And that passage kind of conjures up the whole image of um, consent to treat and surrender again, doesn't it? Just being willing to be totally available to God, leaving no stone unturned. Shame is what stealthily grows in the dark when parts of ourself are kept out of our formation. And shalom is able to grow when Jesus has access to all of those hidden places. The exposure of all parts of ourselves is essential to learning Christ. So we receive the attachment love of Jesus as a whole person. We abide with our whole person, and we surrender our whole person. Let's shape our lives and our practices and even our Bible studies around those elements um, in order to learn Christ. Um, so those were the elements, let me say them again just for, um, so we can remember them, hesed, abiding, surrender, wholeness. And then to just kind of return back to the question, how does formation happen in everyday real life? Um, at the center of that triangle that Tony was mentioning is Jesus learning Christ, but all of that happens in a specific culture and context. Paul was writing to a group of people with a certain culture and context, and he told them to no longer live the way those around them are living. We cannot ignore or forget the fact that we live in this particular culture and context, and it is an increasingly post-Christian one. The visual for me has been for a while now that we are sitting in this soup. We are simmering in a stew pot, being formed and taking on the flavor of what is normative in our culture. And um, I, f I felt led to just kind of offer um, a sisterly challenge here. Um, some of us have just, over time, unknowingly, I'm sure, cranked that soup up to a rapid boil. We are taking in so many things so fast and then hoping that five to ten minutes in the scriptures or listening to a Christian leader's podcast will offset all the things that we're taking in and that are forming us. We cannot forget, all of us, that we are being formed one way or another, right? 
Whatever we're doing with our time, whatever decisions we're making, we are all being formed. We are um, learning something. We want to learn Christ. Amen. Amen. So when Hannah, when we were preparing for this, and it was on Hannah's heart to make sure that we just all, all, are all reminded uh, that we're doing this, having this conversation, and this idea of everyone walking happens within a cultural context that influences us a ton. It reminded me of uh, a quote by a man named Leslie Newbigin. <clears throat> in 1936, a man named Leslie Newbigin, along with his young wife, was sent from his home country of Great Britain to live as a missionary to the people of India. These, so the Newbigins were these kind of crazy people who were just willing to uproot their entire lives and go wherever Jesus called them to go. And Leslie and his family lived and served and proclaimed Jesus there in India for decades. And then in 1974, so almost four decades later, at the age of 65, they felt called to uproot their lives again and to go back to Great Britain. And when they returned to their country, they were astounded at the change that had taken place. You see, during those decades, Great Britain and actually much of Western Europe had experienced this shift toward an increasingly post-Christian culture. And Leslie Newbigin, when he came back, he observed how much that shift had impacted the vitality and formation of the church. He had been, to use the picture that Hannah just used with the soup, he had been outside of the soup for so long that when he came back, he had this ability to see it. And what he saw was that the church had to rethink how they were being and doing church together. And one of his great works was this book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. And one quote from that book has just absolutely gripped me for many years, and it actually has shaped much of our journey together as a church as we try to, to do this whole Jesus thing in the midst of the soup in which we find ourselves, this increasingly post-Christian context. Newbigin in the writing posed the question, how will it be possible for the church to have a real impact in a pluralistic society that has either mixed the gospel with things like nationalism or moved past the gospel altogether. And here's what he said. Here's the quote. Newbegin wrote, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Think about that. He said, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, that means right explanation or right interpretation, and may I add, the only proclamation of the good news that makes any kind of real lasting impact on the world around us is a community of men and women who believe it and in everyday real life actually live by it. To the glory of God. Church, that's why this conversation is so important. The stakes for this are incredibly high. You see, the way Fort Wayne and the nation sing for joy is this right here. Everyone walking. Everyone walking the path of formation. At the blazing center of it is this idea of really learning Jesus together. Everyone walking and experiencing together the formation 
that Jesus brings to a community of saints who are becoming saints. And everybody agreed and said, amen. So now we're going to prepare for communion and coming to the table together. Um, and let's, let's prepare by remembering Jesus from Scripture, that we see him receive the attachment love of his father at his baptism when God says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then we see him abiding all throughout his ministry um, as he got his strength to serve and to keep serving and his power to heal and to keep healing directly from God the Father. And one of the ways we see him in full surrender is in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is experiencing sorrow to the point of death and he is sweating um, drops of blood. He says from that state, um, that bodily, emotional state, not my will, but yours be done. He gives God full permission and access. He climbs not on an operating table, so to speak. His altar is the cross. And he leaves not one part of himself held back from God in obedience. He did not even spare his body and his blood. Full surrender that led to life for the whole world. For you, for me, the whole world. Let's remember that because of what he has done, we are saints. And Jesus, just as I'm saying this, I just want to acknowledge and say out loud that you are here with us. So we are remembering you together, but we are doing it not as a character in the scriptures. We are doing it as a, a living person who died for us. Um, so let's lean in with our whole selves and practice learning Christ as we come to the table together.